hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakker, European rates strategist, and I'm joined today by our global market specialists, John Briggs, Giles Gale and Chaps Hallis. Before getting into the discussion today, I just wanted to quickly remind you to hit the subscribe button so you can listen to our latest episodes as soon as they're available. Uh, And also a reminder, uh, I know John kindly reminded you all last week just to send them in for Giles, but you can send them in for any of our podcasters. If you have any questions, please send them um, either directly to us or to our Bondcast mailbox, which is bondcast at natwest.com. Let's get straight into it this week because, um, well, it's been a quiet week on the data front and the European side. US side, it's been quite busy. Um, Since we last caught up, we had very strong payroll numbers on Friday, which were kind of strong across the board, you know, strong job gains, but also the fall in unemployment was larger than expected. Um, But now we've just had um, not quite as strong as expected inflation data this morning. We're literally recording this hot off the press, just straight after the inflation print. So I hope you've had time to collect your thoughts, John. But how how do we kind of weigh those two things up? You know, strength on the employment side, but not quite as strong on the inflation side. Yeah, thanks, Imogen. And, you know, as listeners know, we recorded the last podcast before, um, before the employment report. So this time, at least we get a full data uh, slate to look at. I mean, in the employment report, definitely stronger than expected. I mean, I think it, it was it was as much of a you know continued progress towards the the Fed's goal of substantial progress. So as long as we get a good labor market number coming in, you know, next month, we think that the September meeting will be one where they discuss their taper plans and communicate that. So you know, the number definitely made good progress. It also made progress along a lot of the lines of the social goals that the Fed has espoused along the unemployment rate side. You know, there's a lot of the different demographics, however you look at, um, you know, fell, the unemployment rate fell greatly. Now we still have a pretty little bit of a participation rate issue. There's still a lot of questions on employment going forward. A lot of that hinges around school reopenings, obviously labor supply, well, not obviously, but there's a belief and I adhere to it to some degree that, um, you know, lack of daycare that schools provided have constricted labor supply. So, um, you know, if we can get the schools open, will that labor supply uh, increase? If we have some derailing because of Delta, you know, that's a real uncertainty. There's also that this number was a July number published in August. So, you know, will the August number show some slowdowns for Delta? I mean, these are not like ourselves. We're not particularly concerned about that when it comes to our forecasts, but they're 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 reasonable concerns to have. So. You know, it was a good number. It showed continued progress, but I don't want to, you know, just say that this is all we need. We just need to see, I think, another month here in the uh, employment report beginning of September. On the inflation side, this August is where we had our lull. Um, I mean, this data print, again, just looking at it very quickly, looks like used car prices fell more than even we were expecting. We were we had 0.3, not 0.4 on core, which was uh, 0.4 was consensus. We do still, however see a pickup in inflation towards year end with core PCE ending the year at 3.5. So um, again, we're going to crunch the numbers, but at first glance, this doesn't change the trajectory, especially because one of the reasons why we have inflation picking up more steadily towards the end of the year, as this COVID reopening stuff transfers out, used car prices as, for, as, as a prime example, you know, we have rents and OER picking up. 
So with that at 0.3 this month, that certainly doesn't seem, again, on the surface to dissuade us from having this pickup in inflation coming in towards the back end of the year, which is mostly based on the rent, on the rent side. So it, it's, it, the market reaction today is one of relief. You know, you've seen stocks rally and bonds fall back. So there was definitely feels, looks like some fear of this number. But the broader theme of inflation being an issue for the markets and the Fed is going to remain to the end of the year. I take it then that means that you, this hasn't really your kind of timeline from the Fed. I know we spoke, you, well, you spoke, sorry, last week on the pod with Jan about um, Claridge's comments. And then we've had comments from uh, Bostick as well, which have kind of echoed um, that sentiment. But, but this doesn't change your timeline for how we're thinking about a, a taper and then a, a rate hike then. No, and thanks for raising that again, because, you know, I think that Clarida comments, even on reflection, I think are probably even more important than I probably flagged in um, last week's Bondcast. And not just because the Fed presidents have backed it up. And as a reminder, you know, I, I do think Clarida is super important. He's one of the designers of flexible average inflation targeting. So him saying that they think that they're going to have much more than what his view of, of, you know, success is on that front. He didn't say that specifically, but that's really what he was getting at. By the end of the year, you know, much more with higher risks to inf- with upside risk to inflation is really a strong signal. I mean, I just don't I don't think there's any way that he would have had that um, communication without Powell's approval. But, you know, at the same time, deeper in that speech was also on the labor market side. So both him and Bostic and a couple others here, I think, are telling you that the Fed is is has either met or is soon going to meet the inflation requirements under flexible average inflation targeting. So the only thing that's left is the employment side. And according to Clarity, he says the end of 2022, that red headline about, you know, rate hikes, whatever, it was more about the fact that he thought the unemployment, or I'm sorry, I should say the employment goal will be reached in 20, end of 2022. The what is not addressed is a scenario where, you know, which, which we, I think is going to be tricky for them in the markets later in the year, which is you have three and a half percent inflation. You might have that much more. He said above 3% is much more. So you have inflation much more than he has, and you have employment likely heading towards full employment, but not you still maybe a year away. Well, what do you do then? How do the markets react then? So that's why I think that you still have to price in higher probabilities of rate hikes into the belly of the curve, because the market, is, you know, you, the distribution of probabilities is going to get wider to the upside. Even if the Fed doesn't go, the market has to handicap the chance that they may have to act in the face of higher inflation. We think it's going to come down, not down to two, but down to, you know, two, four, two and a half over 2022. But we don't know that for sure. You know, our supply chain is going to clear up. Is pricing going to be sticky? It's a very uncertain time. And that uncertainty is all to the upside on inflation and thus on rates. So, I, again, I'm not crazy bearish, but I just feel like the distribution probabilities means that the market is going to increasingly need to price in more rate hikes throughout the year. What kind of a, a range then would you be talking about? You say not not crazy bearish, but still looking, I guess, for higher rates from here. Um, we've had a bit of a pause in the rally, you know, through August. We've had uh, what a, a probably fifteen bit sell off in in ten year treasuries, maybe since the beginning of the month. So, how much higher would you be looking for them to go over the kind of next few weeks before we get, you know, another round of? Uh, uh, payrolls data and, and inflation data in September. Yeah, it's an important distinction because, like I said, I still think there's some fair questions about this near-term time period. You know, how much is Delta slowing activity? The governments aren't going to impose widespread restrictions. I don't think asking people to wear a mask indoors is a restriction. You know, it's obviously not pleasant 
for most people, but, um, or having kids go back to schools in masks, they're still going back to schools. We're talking about more widespread lockdowns. There's no political appetite for that. But, you know, as Delta increases in the US and we've got very a lot of divergences between states, there is a risk that things see a little bit slower activity. You know, my kids are going back to school. I want to make sure they do. So we're just being a little more cautious. You know, we're not eating at at restaurants indoors anymore, masks or not. We're eating outside. But, you know, so like, I think there could be some question about whether activity levels in this, in this Delta period could slow. Um, Like I said, questions about the employment in August, is that going to reflect things? Uh, You've got, you know, there's still, and I do think these are much more valid questions about peak growth in Asia, um, you know, what's going on with the commodity cycle. I, you know, the, the global growth is not looking as unified as it was a year ago because of different vaccination rates. There are reasons to be cautious. So I do think that for now you're in, we were in a, say a 110, 130 range in 10 year yields. I think you'll probably be in a 120, 140 range until you get that first round of data in September to clear out the path to the September Fed. After that, again, we still think it's more of a belly led move. So five cents, five series flatteners. You know, I think fives could easily get above 1% as the year moves on, given our inflation forecast. I mean, if you listeners have a different inflation forecast or don't believe inflation is going to be that higher, you're not going to be on board with that. Um, but, you know, nothing so far I see derails that. So it is going to be, I think, a near term range trade without a lot of energy. But as, you know, as soon as people put their kids on the bus and realize things aren't as bad, maybe you start to go back to work and sell some ponds. All right. Well, I look forward to happening then. <laughs> um, I guess that brings me nicely over to Europe then, Charles, because I just mentioned, you know, the, the relatively big sell-off that we've had through the beginning of this month in treasuries, but it seems like European bonds have been outperforming quite strongly. Why is that? What, what do you think has been driving that move? Well, you know, I think that it's partly, as I said last week, the, the, the you know the memory of uh, what happened just last month, and so it's very difficult for people who have uh, who've really been through a, you know quite a lot of pain to to really think about um, you know trading the fundamentals again from the, uh, from the bearish side, and I would you know just echo everything that John has just said about uh, about the ongoing uncertainties. So you know, I think that that's one part of it, but I also think the ECB is. Uh, pretty important part of it you know i mean we've we were expecting qe to drop to about 20 billion per per week um, on a gross basis and you know i mean that would have been more or less in line with last year which you know for lack of another benchmark you know we've sort of thought that that was kind of you know, the path that the ECB was trying to follow. And, you know, we now know that it, it, it looks like, at least you now on the basis of the last couple of weeks, that they've been buying quite a lot more than that. We've had two, two successive weeks of about 27 billion. And at a time when there's really no supply out there, I mean, you know, we had some some Germany today, but, um, you know, there it, it really gets very, very quiet in the middle of August. Uh, you know, that ongoing uh, pace of you know, whatever it is, it's going to be about 50 billion, I suppose, from, from the ECB over, over a two-week period. You know, that's a pretty substantial uh, support. And is the same, is that the same driver for what's been going on at the kind of three to four year part of the curve? Or is, is there something else that's been happening closer to the front end that's been driving that? Yeah, right. So, I mean, you know, we, I mean, you can look at the curve and, you know, I mean, sort of 
I guess the arguments sort of stack up a little bit different according to, to, to where you're looking at on the curve. I mean, I, I'd say the front end is probably, you know, around, no, not, not that far from, from fairly priced. I mean, probably uh, I would say that the skew of risks, um, you know, over the coming months, uh, that it's uh, the front end expectations are, are still too low. I mean, clearly we're not going to be talking about rate hikes as a 2022 or probably even a 2023 theme in Europe. For, um, you know, <laughs> certainly not in the next couple of um, a couple of months for, for 2023, even on, in an upside scenario. But I mean, you know, now the front end has flattened to an, to, to an extent where I would say that the skew of risks is probably towards towards higher rate even rates even in that sector. But what's really interesting is the way, and this is something that you know, I sort of tried to dig into a little bit um, in in our written work last week, that um, there there's a real kind of invert a curve inversion, uh, as you say, in that three to four year area. But actually going back a little bit um, on, on Friday and it sort of maintained uh, at the, the levels that it got to there. But, you know, it's a bit of a puzzle. And, you know, I quite like to use this, uh, you know, I mean, I, I Maybe I should turn this back and anticipate questions that I'm uh, that, that that we may get from you, uh, you listeners. But no, any, anyone who has a strong view, please let let let, let um, that be known. I think it's probably to do with official flows um, from um, probably relatively near Europe. Um, the kind in particular I have in mind the the kinds of central banks that are forced to a large extent to shadow what the euro system is doing in terms of quantitative easing and they have quite narrow mandates in terms of what they can buy and what maturities they can buy and so i would expect that it's probably to do with that but it's quite eye-catching because it hasn't really been following what the derivatives have been saying so there's a disconnect there between market sectors Um, and it's also a level in, in yield, which is you know, got very close to the most extreme of last year, and that is pretty extreme. Okay, so you know, then we can talk a lot about the rest of the curve, but I think that right, right there, that was a particularly interesting story, and I think there still is. Okay, we talked then about you know central banks raised. We've talked about the ECB. We talk frequently about what foreigners are doing with relation to European rates and what um, uh, bank treasuries are doing. But we haven't talked at all recently. I well, unless you have, and I've been missing out on these conversations. But we really haven't been talking a lot recently about what pensions and insurance funds have been doing. And I feel like that's something we used to talk about a lot more. Why is it that that you know, they just don't seem to be dominating the the flow discussion so much anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, essentially, it's because the you know the I mean, I suppose that the supply and quantitative easing and the flow and the foreign flows have all been an order many orders of magnitude greater uh, than than what they've been doing uh, in the in the last couple of years, at the very least. Uh, you know, insurance and pensions have really just been doing their best to kind of tread water, maintain their holdings. Again, you know that, and there haven't really been any particularly urgent. Sort of regulatory uh, stories, which you know, for for years were sort of always what people like to you know, like like to follow, because obviously it's a change in behaviour which you know, 
tends to drive markets so people trying to you know try to get ahead of those themes but there is one um which is the i mean in fact there are two i suppose and actually there was quite a nice um uh article from from the ecb last week um in its uh, in the economic bulletin which uh which summarized these you know, quite quite appealingly um you've got insurance that are really you know i mean they, they they've been hurting because of the kinds of uh long-term um contracts that they that they've written with uh, with their clients and they've been trying to get away from you know this underwriting of market risk if you like i mean you know because that it's to, you know, for for such large industries like you know it's, it's very difficult for them to diversify that away in fact you, know, you might make the case that it's impossible for them so so underwriting market risk as insurance do, d- does you know, i think has been revealed over the last 20 years not to be a great idea so what they've been trying to do is basically turn themselves into you know, effectively asset managers and you know manage <laughs> manage funds for you manage your savings but not necessarily you know underwrite things like duration to the same extent so you know we've seen a big shift towards unit linked um kinds of policies in uh, in, in insurance and at the same time in particular in in the netherlands there's uh, the, you know, there's this ongoing switch towards collective defined contribution and you know i mean that doesn't mean that these are industries that won't be buying bonds anymore but they'll certainly be looking at bonds through a different lens and you know i think that perhaps we should be talking about it a little bit more because in you know four or five years time you know when we get past this period where there be a not be all and end all for for for, for yield dur- no, levels and duration is really quantitative easing once we get past that we'll be emerging into a world where you know the other industries that matter these lm industries are also behaving quite differently so I think that that's something that we ought to be talking about a little bit more. Mm-hmm. We are finding clients for that then. Um, well, okay, just quickly then before I move over to Theo, because I'm conscious of time, but I think thanks to John's probing last weekend, last week even, you are the lucky recipient of this week's question. So um, I'm not going to restrict you to one word, but maybe just in a few words, you could tell me if break, European break-evens here are a buy or a sell. Okay, great. Oh, so, so, so pleased that it's me. Um, well, I think that they're a buy. Um, no, and I have had this long-term target of about no. Well, I mean, one one point eight five percent for the five-year five-year swap in, uh, in European inflation. I, I think the, the value is probably more in the cash bonds just at the moment, and you know, there are some. Know, sort of recent disconnects between US inflation and European inflation, where European inflation has been doing much better. Um, so I can see why people might look you know, sideways at this market and go, does this, is this, this really making sense? But I think that strategically, it's still a buy. All right, great. Thank you to our listener that sent that question in. All right, Theo, then your turn. Sorry to make you wait so long this week. Now, last week when you guys recorded the pod, it was kind of fresh straight after the Bank of England and the market reaction, you know, was a little bit confusing because they weren't quite sure how to really the um, new information that came to light with regards to um, the Bank of England's reaction function that I suppose we um, 
weren't necessarily expecting so now having had time to kind of markets properly digest that has pricing across money markets really changed now that the bank of england i I guess is telling us that it's ready to implement quantitative tightening sure i guess what we what we know is that the boe will do nothing before we uh, touch 0.5 percent of the bank rate um we also know that the market prices in that 0.5% 0.5% to be reached in a little bit less than two years' time. So say um, by uh, March to June 2023. Um, and then we also know that the term structure just moved by a little bit. So if we compare the Sonia term structure, what it used to price before the meeting and what it does price after the meeting, it's it's up by around five basis points. So uh, there's been a sell-off, but nothing no, nothing huge. I think what the market needs to really uh, understand is that to the extent that the BOE do stick to the no reinvestment plan uh, and this uh, can happen as soon as 2023, we do have significant additional amount of tightening kicking in. So the BOE, they've mentioned that this tightening through the balance sheet, well, first of all, they, they, they said that the non reinvestments are not a tightening. So we start from that. So the BOE, they do not regard that as a form of tightening. So this is one. The other point is that a reduction in the size of the balance sheet during fairly uh, stable conditions should not affect the market. Anyway, what we know is that this was an amount of accommodation that the market did expect to take place. And if things happen as per BOE, it will not be delivered. So the non-delivery of easing is a form of tightening. What we find very interesting is that other than the, the, the two to three year point where, you know, uh, things should uh, uh, should evolve as pre-meeting. And it is fairly clear that those who are uh, bullish the economy should just be on the paid side with rates. It is very interesting that when we look at things such as, for example, the, the five-year sector, this amount of tightening that happens through the non-reinvestment of, of balance sheet can be, um, you know, it ranges between 50 to even 100 basis points. So it can be quite substantial depending on the way that the economy will react. Again, it is QE, stock of QE is the contingent and, 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 and a reduction, et cetera, et cetera, of the, of the stock does not matter, but based on assumptions, it is something significant now. Is it going to be 50 or is it going to be 100 basis points? Hard to tell, but it is a significant number. It is not like 10 basis points. So it will be something substantial in, in our view. And this also means that hiking beyond that 0.5% becomes increasingly difficult. So we go to 0.5% fairly easy, but then this, 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 this exceeding that level becomes difficult, let alone reaching 1%. Because from the 1% level, then uh, the, the Bank of England will consider active selling. And this way, I think the market does not believe in the story of active selling. Before the meeting, the terminal rate was priced at 70 basis points. After the meeting, if we have a quantitative tightening you know, in the years to come, then we should price in an even slower grind higher. So we should price in an even lower terminal rate. But what I think is very interesting also is that the BOE, and this has attracted very little attention, is that the BOE, they have confirmed that negative rates are in the toolkit and are operational. Of course, this is not something that is happening now. We get it. We talk about hikes now. We talk about the recovery. 
everybody wants to talk about, you know, higher inflation and, and, and yields going up, et cetera. But the important part is that we unlocked the tool of negative rates. And this is something that, you know, it was, it was under consideration. It took six months, the BOE did deliver it, but we received the confirmation, which again changes the skew, i.e. from a point and onwards, yes, hikes become more difficult, but cuts become fairly more straightforward. So how are you kind of putting all of this information together then in terms of what you think this means for the shape of the curve? You know, before the meeting, you had those threes, tens, steepness on. I think you closed those last week. Um, so how are you kind of thinking that this all comes together and, and what the implications are for, for the shape of the curve? Yeah, I think the, the reason why we closed it is because uh, the messaging is quite different to what we had expected in the sense of if you get a clearly bearish signal, then it makes sense to have the, 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 the steepener. We also felt that steepeners were a trade that did get popularity and we prefer closing a trade that is very popular before you know everybody uh, rushes to close that. So there were, from a risk reward point of view, the risks were high, this is why we, we closed that. Uh, what does all this mean uh, with regards to the bank rate? Well, we think that, and, and with regards to the curve, we think that tactical guys and, and, and the bullish guys uh, will probably keep paying the front of the curve. So this is something where I can envision more uh, selling pressure. I can envision also more uh, selling pressure in longer maturities, the 10-year part. Uh, this is a part uh, which we are short, uh, either outright short or um, we modified the view into F5s cash for cash. Sure, it's again, it's, 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 it's a similar idea. So, uh, you know, different ways to express that. But we think that some of the maturities between that two and the 10 year bucket will probably struggle to sell off. In which case you may have a situation where, you know, the very front end and, and the back end do sell off, but some of the maturities just struggle to sell off because we need to price in a market where there is some inertia. There is some, uh, you know, there is some some headwind coming towards further hikes, especially because some of the tightening may actually happen through, you know, through quantitative tightening, through the reduction in the stock of balance sheet. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bondcast. Please do subscribe to our channel to get future episodes and like it as this will help others to find it. We also encourage you to follow us on social media to get all our latest content. Speak to you again soon.